Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. This is Evan Van Ness with an Ethereum podcast. I'm here today with Jordan Clifford from Scalar Capital. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. As a disclaimer, of course, I work for Consensus, and so you can think of this podcast as being sponsored by Consensus. So thank you to Consensus. So Jordan, you're now part of the famous Coinbase Mafia styled, you know, on the the, the PayPal Mafia who all went on to do really interesting things in Silicon Valley over the past couple decades. And we've already seen that with, with Coinbase employees. I'm curious, how would you describe the culture there at Coinbase? So the culture at Coinbase is actually changing very fast. So I joined Coinbase in February of 2016. And when I joined, it felt you know a, a bit wild, a bit, a bit cowboyish in a way. Engineers pretty much had carte blanche to make uh, product improvements, assuming they were compliant with whatever uh, our obligations were. So we always had a very strong culture of security and compliance at Coinbase. But but once those two you know checkboxes are met, it was really up to engineers, and still in some ways is up to engineers to help drive the company forward. And it felt very like fast paced and moving, like just moved very very quickly. However, as you know, the, the whole industry has grown, and as Coinbase is more and more into the spotlight. You've started to see the culture shift to become a bit more corporate. You know, it's not it's not 100% good or 100% bad, but it's definitely true that Coinbase has a lot of eyes on them at this point, and they are in the position where they need to be making sure that they are giving the you know just trusted appearance to to the public. So it's you know a lot more rules, a lot more policy, a lot more uh, of an, the exec team is being built out. They just hired a. COO and a president, um, former partner at A16Z. So I'm very excited by the, the the kind of transformation of the company into a more professional institution. But it does kind of you do feel a little nostalgia for the earlier days. Yeah, which is only you know less than two years ago, and yet at the time it already seemed like a big company to, to me. So it's it's sort of surprising to hear hear you say that. But I guess the headcount is probably. 4x in that time frame? Yeah, so when I joined, I think it was about 120 or so people, and it's definitely more than doubled. It's I don't know what the, what the number is. I can't keep track of it. Yeah, they're hiring so quickly, but it's, uh, yeah, I think they're around 300 people now, so it's, it's, it's growing very fast. So you were a developer on the customer acquisition team? I guess, tell me about your work there. So I actually started out doing internal tools and compliance engineering. So I was responsible for making sure we actually coded up all the rules and regulations that were imposed on us at Coinbase and helping making sure those systems were, were automated as much as possible. About halfway through my tenure at Coinbase, I switched to the growth team where I, yes, I, I did work on the customer acquisition side of things. And I really just tried to get Coinbase to think more like a marketer would. And I, you know, I had a background in product and marketing strategy from Capital One. So I've kind of seen you know, what companies do in terms of crafting their brand voice, their message, 
and getting it out in front of people. So I really, you know, push push the exec team to help you know, guide the company to do more of that. So we set up things like Facebook retargeting campaigns, nudge campaigns to help people, you know, be reminded that they are in the process of getting onboarded at Coinbase and there's still more steps to do. There's a rather large number of steps to actually go from signing up to Coinbase to being ready to trade. You have to verify your phone number, verify your email, add your bank account, verify your bank account. People drop off at any every step along the way, as you might imagine. So at Coinbase, we're, we're taking steps to help bring back more of those lost folks and turn them into customers. So that, that was really what we focused on, optimizing that conversion funnel. It must have seemed like it was already on the hockey stick like back even when you joined. And yet, I guess you experienced some of the... Um, like crazy, crazy spikes in customer acquisition growth um, while you were there. I guess it probably didn't affect you directly uh, since you weren't like working on DevOps. But so actually, when I joined, you know, it was coming through that that you know two year bear cycle. That that two year bear cycle was just ending, and it was not clear that it was ending. To be honest with you, people at Coinbase, I think, were some of the truest believers in crypto. So there was very much an upbeat, positive spirit about what we were doing. But there were a lot of employees that had been there just through nothing but bad times and were in some ways getting disillusioned a bit. So it was kind of an interesting mix of, you know, true believers as well as people who were, you know, just ready to see some up, uptick in growth. And the markets just had been going through that contractionary phase. So it was really a, just a great time to join because I joined as a true believer. I've been in Bitcoin in 2013 and I've never stopped believing in Bitcoin even throughout 2014 and 15. To join right at the beginning of 2016, right as we were kind of coming around the bend in the in the journey, was was super exciting. And so you have now started a fund with Linda Shea. I, I guess tell me when did you meet? When did you meet her? Did did y'all work together? We worked pretty closely together at Coinbase. She started out as a compliance investigator, working with law enforcement. So she was a customer in many ways. She and her team for some of the tools I was building, as far as you know, back end internal tools to help uh, our investigators get access to the information they needed. So we worked collaboratively there. And then later on, she became the product manager of internal tools. And we continued to work together. We also were two of the more outspoken, uh, passionate people at Coinbase. So we set up various forums, internal forums for Coinbase employees to share notes and collaborate and debate different topics. And that was really fun. So, for example, we had the Coinbase uh, Crypto Investment Club, which was a monthly lunch discussion where we would all huddle into the boardroom of Coinbase and, and really just duke it out, debate Bitcoin versus Ether one more time, round 99. <laughs> and, and, you know, we would just talk about the trends in the space and share notes and, you know, talk about what we were looking at down the future. And that and that kind of collaborative uh energy that we, we built up through that investment club really was what drove us to decide to leave together and, and, and start this company, Scalar Capital. You said you said Bitcoin versus Ether. I assume you were on the Bitcoin side, um, and this is an Ethereum podcast. So I guess, tell me about your, your journey um, from, I don't know, in, in those debates. Yes. So I, I've, I've, I no longer consider myself a Bitcoin maximalist, but I still would be remiss if I were to tell you that I didn't believe the network effect and the brand penetration that Bitcoin has is really going to set it up for success. I, and I, I, I'm optimistic about Ether. Um, you know, Ether's, Ether's great. I hold Ether and our, our company will, will definitely hold it as well. But Bitcoin is, is still, I think, the most robust, trustworthy 
system for you know just long-term store of value and potentially payments down the line if we can get some of these secondary layers built on top of it. So the brand, the brand penetration as far as the mainstream consciousness, I think Bitcoin is years ahead. I don't know about you personally, but for me, like it took me two years to get my head wrapped around current cryptocurrencies. And the only reason I got comfortable was I just saw Bitcoin over and over and over. And that's that's true of, I think, just about everybody. It takes repeated exposure to an idea before they're ready to invest in it. For the general public, for the mainstream investor, the re- the regular American and international folk, they want to see something multiple times before they're ready to invest. And Bitcoin just has years of a head start in terms of getting on their radar and getting them comfortable with what they're buying. So I guess you are not a Bitcoin Cash true believer. I love Bitcoin Cash. I'm I'm I've been buying small amounts of Bitcoin Cash. To be honest, I'm still holding mostly Bitcoin just because I think the institutional money is going to find its way into Bitcoin and the futures and derivatives and ETF wrappers that are coming online are going to be built for Bitcoin proper, Bitcoin core. But that said, I think that capacity really matters and I think that bigger blocks don't necessarily bring around centralization in the in the kind of way that we've have this cult that believes it does. I think that there's room for decentralization with large blocks. I think there's ways that we can deal with a large block size, kind of like, um, you know, just bloom filters and pruning and chain state checkpointing. There's all kinds of techniques you can use to cope with a large block size and not be forced into data centers for all of your validation. So I'm actually a really big believer in Bitcoin Cash. But that said, I try to be pragmatist. I try not to let any ideology drive my investment decisions. So I'm much more of a fan of placing multiple bets and and letting letting the winners run and and letting it all play out with my chips in you know all the promising promising places. You talked about the the crypto club. So I guess tell me about the forming for deciding to leave Coinbase and, and form a fund. I had heard that that Linda sort of recruited you. Is that is that accurate? How did you all come to the process? Uh, come to the conclusion to to go out and and jump ship. So it was Linda's idea. I'll give her credit for that. That said, recruiting me, I guess you could say so. We we left. I actually left before she did, and she left about a week after me. It was, so she had been kind of kicking this idea around for a while. Various other uh, venture firms and investment managers were were looking to recruit her into their offices, and that's that wasn't that attractive to her to leave Coinbase to become an employee somewhere else. That said, she didn't really want to leave on venture out on her own. She really wanted to have a technical co-founder. So she was in the market to have a co-founder, a technical one. And she did ask me to, you know, whether I was interested in setting up a fund. And I said, yeah, I'm interested. And kind of at that point, I was pretty much sold right immediately. And she's maybe a bit more risk averse, a bit more practical. So it took her a couple of weeks to, to really be 100% on board with the idea. But it was really a really an exciting time. This It happened really fast. It was you know the, only this summer that we decided to venture out on this on this journey. So, so she recruited you. And then once she had recruited you, you had to convince her to really do it. Yeah, uh, I think that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I guess tell me about You've mentioned it a little bit, but tell me about your thesis in investing in digital assets over a, let's say, a a five-year time frame. Yeah, so we believe that this space is poised for orders of magnitude growth over the next five to ten years. So we are really long-term focused as as an investment manager, and we really like to, you know, stress these these assets from both a technical standpoint as well as far as as their code produced in a in a 
you know, with, with best practices? Are they doing adequate test coverage? Do they have code review? Do, do the decisions they're making even make sense? You know, a lot of these ICOs and stuff, you don't actually even need a token, or if you do need a token, um, they're, they're designed in really you know, weird ways, usually to get around securities laws. So we, we actually like to stress the technical vision for, for the asset as well as the business vision. So Linda and I both have an economics background. We've both been in, interested in finance for quite some time. So that, that experience really helps us understand these assets from a, an investment standpoint as do they actually make economic sense? Is, is there going to be a market for, for the problem that these, these assets are solving? So that said, once once the once an asset has met our kind of criteria as far as both of the technical vision and the economic vision, then we we like to we like to place bets in a diversified way. So there's no nobody has a crystal ball. Like I have strong conviction, Linda has strong conviction, many people in the industry do. I don't think any of us can for death for 100% certainty say that they know what's going to happen. So we like to spread our bets out and really just focus on different kind of sectors of, of assets that make sense to us. So payments, store of value, this is kind of the first thing people think about when they think cryptocurrencies. This is your Bitcoin, your Bitcoin Cash, your Litecoin, maybe even a Dash would fit in there. And that's one class, and, and we want to be exposed to that. It's very exciting. It's, it's kind of got the most proven use case and, and, and market. But there's also a focus on, uh, for us, a very strong focus on privacy. I think that People kind of don't realize how transparent their economic interactions on the blockchain are. You know, people think about Bitcoin as being this this fully untraceable anonymous asset, and that's just not true. Bitcoin is one of the most traceable assets out there, and it's pseudonymous. So it, as long as you've not revealed information linking your identity to your address, yeah, you can be relatively sure that your financial dealings aren't open to the general public. But if somebody starts to tie your identity to an address, they can start to uncover all kinds of private details that you'd probably would rather keep private. So financial privacy is something that Linda and I really believe is is a you know human right to you know and it's it's kind of goes back to the cypherpunk uh, movement in a way where financial privacy is really gives gives humans room to breathe and and to to kind of express themselves without needing fear of being watched or fear of being judged by others. So financial privacy is something that we're looking taking a very close look at. We also are excited by infrastructure plays as far as like storage and files and computation. We're excited by a decentralized exchange. So Linda's actually an advisor to 0x, which is widely regarded as one of the better crowd sales of 2017, which was a, the year of crowd sales. So they actually launched with a product from day zero, which is relatively unique in the ICO space. And we're very excited by that project. Right now, they're, they've built a building block to help decentralized exchanges facilitate ERC-20 exchange. We're optimistic that they're going to eventually move beyond ERC-20s into a, a more broad base of assets that can be decentralized exchange, can be facilitated using the Xerox protocol. The whole idea of interoperability between chains makes, makes a lot of sense to us, especially as more and more of these assets come out and they solve different needs or different use cases or different niches. I think that's uh, the smart contract space is, I think, the last one. You know, things like escrow agents, insurance brokers, custodians, intermediaries, all of these things can be disrupted with, with code. You know, if you can actually move the trust of a system away from the analog realm of brick and mortar buildings, paperwork and courthouses, if you can get rid of, not get rid of, but if you can kind of replace some of their functions with, you know, a smart contract on a blockchain, you've actually built some very powerful building blocks to help kind of 
bring more and more of our, our societal fabric onto away from the analog realm and into the digital realm. And that's something that, that we um, really believe in. I want to ask about what you said about Zero X. How will they, I hadn't heard, thought of them as an interoperability between chains solution. Like how will they expand into doing that? That's a longer term vision. I think they're still kind of kicking around ideas on how to accomplish that. I think they're going to end up needing to have either Cosmos or Polkadot or somebody else build out the kind of links between chains and then Zero X would build on top of that and become a framework for exchanging assets across chains. The privacy coins, obviously, your your focus on that comes out of Coinbase, and having worked in it, it seems like that would especially be a focus for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what what do you find What do you find most promising in the space? Is there any anything that you think is under underappreciated? We think the the whole privacy, you know, coins, privacy currencies in general are, are still undervalued. I think you know Monero is the largest one. At, uh, maybe it's about five billion now. When you take when you take that into in the context of Bitcoin or even larger markets like you know, forex and gold, we think that there's lots in the offshore banking system, which is commonly quoted as having 20 trillion of a market. So we think that the privacy coins still are undervalued. You know, Monero is the best in class. Uh, I love the Monero team. I love their what they've done and accomplished. They've they've they're one of the few teams that actually not only goes and does you know peer peer reviewed quality research, gets it published in legitimate journals, they actually also have the kind of community and system that enables them to implement that work. So they hard fork every six months, which lets them do, you know, more radical upgrades to the system. And they've actually proven that they can execute on some rather dramatic changes to the system, you know, Ring Ring CT being one of the larger examples of that, where they actually took a technology and implemented it live. And it's now in use by just about every transaction. And I think it may even be mandatory by this point. So their Monero team is something that we're really excited by. Of course, Zcash is a, is a, is a worthy competitor. The thing about Zcash is it's you know still very new. The inflation schedule is pretty steep. There's a lot of Zcash coming onto the market at this point. But also for, for us, we're, we want to see just a bit more de-risking around the technology underpinning Zcash. So Zcasher is built on ZK Snarks, zero knowledge, succinct arguments of knowledge. And this is something that we're really you know, excited by. It's also important to keep in mind that this technology is only a few years old. The thing about cryptography is you really can't trust it until it's been stood the test of time. And you know, you've had countless security researchers poke at it from every angle. So for the ZK Snarks, it's something that looks very promising and, and is, I would say, well along that process of getting peer-reviewed and having security researchers poke at it. But it's something that I would say is still in that you know maturation phase of, is this actually going to stand the test of time or, or is somebody going to find a problem with it? And you know we'll have to go back to square one as to figuring out how to do this kind of privacy coin. How active do you see your your trading being? Like, do you think you'll be holding positions for, for years? Do you think you'll be rebalancing? Sure. Tell me, so tell me about we, that. We, we, we want to be tax conscious, so we were planning to rebalance about every year and to really take advantage of long-term capital gains when appropriate. But that said, if something runs up way farther than we think it should, we're not against taking gains earlier. So, But we are long-term focused, so we're really only rebalancing either on that annual cadence because we feel like it's really needed to get the portfolio back to where we, we had it targeted. But we also rebalance if there's some opportunity that it looks even more promising than the assets we're currently holding. So if we find some 
really promising new 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 asset or new opportunity. We will, you know, to kind of pare down some of the other positions to make room for it within the portfolio. And so stable coins are all the rage in the valley these days. Tell me, uh, how do you feel about, you didn't list it as one of your of your buckets that you're interested in. Uh, do, how do you feel about stable coins? Like, do we even need one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think stable coins will give the mainstream a bit more comfort when dealing with this. And, you know, if they can actually participate in these decentralized apps or markets and, and not have to worry about their currency risk, I think that would be a really strong thing. That said, I think the, the time frame for stable coins is, Maybe you know the next decade or so, there might be some room for stable coins to exist. I think eventually these markets are going to become so much larger and more liquid and less volatile that people are going to kind of forget about the need for stable coin, and we'll have Bitcoin, and Ether as our stable coins. That's uh, but so in the meantime, in the midterm, the near to midterm, stable coins are interesting. There's a very there's a there's still kind of this search for how to actually make it work in a in a trustless manner. Maker is maybe the furthest along there. Base coins a, another promising contender that has a Interesting approach. One concern I'll, I'll, I'll kind of share about Basecoin is that they, they are planning to do their own chain. That's fine. But to me, the real power of a stable coin comes from the ability to actually interact with other pieces of the infrastructure, other pieces of the blockchain ecosystem. I would want to be able to use that stable coin with, you know, a smart contract on Ethereum or, or, or whatnot. You know, I think the real power comes from actually the interoperability of these stable coins with other 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 things like prediction markets or escrow agents or or you know just peer to peer marketplaces i think you really want to have those you really want to have those things connected together and with the stable coins off on its own chain it feels kind of isolated and and not really able to participate with the rest of the ecosystem in a in a strong way it's impossible to talk about investing in digital assets without the bubble question coming up. So I guess the question is, how do you think about bubbles? You know, people use the word bubble in in so many different ways from people saying that this is imminently about to pop and valuations are going to drop 99.x percent to people saying that this is just a like technological uptrend. Like, how do you think about bubbles Look, I think that we're still in the early days. I think that these assets, you know, their market, their target market in many ways is the market for currencies, which is trillions of dollars large. You know, the demand for money is is, is just extraordinary. And there's so much, you know, liquidity and, and, and fiat out in the, in the world that I don't think we're anywhere near like alarming bubble territory. That said, this is not going to go straight up forever. I think you, you'd be kind of deluding yourself if you thought that we were just going to gain 3% a day for the rest of time. That clearly is not sustainable, and, and, and we'll have some corrections along the way. So I think we'll see some zigs and zags. Uh, we just want to really like be long-term focused, though, and we, want, we have some you know, rather lofty um, targets long-term that we think that these assets can get to. So we're, we're, you know, we're, we're not very concerned about a bubble, but it is something that we, we want to be prepared to weather. I will say though that kind of this there's this this I don't know this this there's this judgment that comes with this speculative mania. People are saying, "Oh, it's a speculative mania. That's crazy. It's got to pop. It's it's worth nothing." I'll say this. The speculative the speculation is actually a vehicle for transferring the future value into the present. You need speculators are that vehicle for actually bringing the future to today and and giving giving the market a, a way to actually get where it's going. You know, the speculators are rewarded for kind of placing bets on the future. And 
I think that this is just a natural process. The speculators are adding liquidity and they're really helping the markets mature in a, in a really great way. This, you know, this market is, is basically been built on things like Bitcoin and then Ether as well uh, that are decentralized technologies. Um, and we now see like some centralized technologies like Ripple and IOTA that are out there. It seems to me like they've sort of piggybacked on decentralized technologies as a way to get attractive valuations. How do you think about that? Do, I mean, there is the, the concern that sometimes like centralized technologies because they can work easier for their users, will will win over decentralized ones. Yeah, the centralized technologies, I think there's a place for them, uh, but that's not where the exciting stuff is happening. That's not, that's not really what's powerful about this technology. A blockchain is often thought of as you know, magical pixie dust that'll make you know, rainbows and unicorns appear out of nowhere, and that's just not the case. A blockchain is really nothing more than a data structure that's created in a public way. So the real way to think about Bitcoin's gift and Ethereum's gift as well is these systems basically bring to the world a way to come together to consensus amongst many parties that don't actually trust each other and they don't agree with each other and they're not cooperative. So everybody joins the system through purely self, self-motivated, self-motivation. They, the miners are, are mining for profit. The investors are investing for profit. The developers are developing for either love or profit. Everybody's acting in their own self-interest, and that's really important. Nobody trusts each other. This is a these the blockchain is a is a is a hostile area. You know, this is this is a way to get trust out of a adversarial environment where you don't trust anybody. And through the blockchain, through the decentralized consensus mechanism, we actually have a way to facilitate economic transfers and to facilitate commerce among people in a peer-to-peer fashion without intermediaries. And also without trusting each other. And that that is only possible in a decentralized system. If you're going to put a centralized player like a Ripple or even like an IOTA where you know they're going to be tending towards data warehouses at some point just based on the way they're designed. If you look at those, a very centralized system that can be that you, you inherently have to trust the people in the middle. And also that, that the people in the middle are vulnerable to regulatory capture or to shutdown by governments. So it's it's really it's not it's not the the stuff that gets us really excited. Since you called yourself a true believer earlier, I had a feeling that that was going to be your answer. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about you. Uh, you said you you know you do have a, a background in finance and economics, uh, but you're also a developer. So uh, tell me about your 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 journey from college to Coinbase and now into investment management. Sure. So I've kind of been fascinated with computers. Ever since I was a kid, you know, some of my fondest memories were, you know, playing computer games with my with my dad. So I've really been intrigued by computers, and, and that's what led me to Carnegie Mellon to study computer science. While at Carnegie, though, I really took this just mind-blowing class freshman year in economics, and I, it gave me a whole framework for viewing the world in terms of opportunity cost, in terms of, you know, time is money and supply and demand. And it sounds basic in hindsight, but these – it's these tools to think about the world were, were really pivotal for me in, in developing as as a person who understands both the economics and the business, economics and business as well as the technology. So out of school at, at Carnegie Mellon, I kind of was a little bit worried about being left in a cubicle to code for the rest of my life without ever talking to anybody. So I actually switched gears and I went to Capital One where I was a business analyst for four years. I did marketing strategy, product strategy. 
learned what it was like to you know deal with a large organization and getting things done in that kind of environment. It was a really exciting and fun time, but it, I kind of got a little, uh, I guess, tired of being a small cog in a giant machine. And I left left Capital One back in 2011 to join to come out to California. So I joined a couple. I joined a startup. Uh, later started a startup. And neither of those ended up succeeding, but they taught me a lot of valuable lessons about what it means to be a professional engineer and what it means to actually ship something that people care about. At that point, I was getting really excited in uh, cryptocurrencies. I, I invested in Bitcoin for the first time in 2013. I was just so gripped by the, the power of these of these assets and this technology to really kind of give trust in a place where there is no trust. Just have been totally enthralled by it. And then I later decided it was time to get a job when my startup wasn't working out. And I decided to knock on Coinbase's door and I was lucky enough to, to find a spot there. So, so tell me about the the process of, of moving from Capital One, which I would assume you were in. Uh, so I was in uh, Richmond first and then McLean, which is in Northern Virginia. I was living in D.C. So tell me about the, the, the process of, of deciding to go from D.C. It sounds like you were a little frustrated with bureaucracy, um, but th- was there something about yeah, so I think the tech boom. I yeah, I think definitely the tech boom was calling me. Uh, you know, at this point, Facebook and Google had both made fortunes, and there were there was another like wave of startups that looked very promising. My friend was actually running a startup and actually recruited me. So it wasn't just me having the foresight. I was actually presented a great opportunity to join a, an early stage startup, and it just it sounded way more exciting than you know Excel number crunching and PowerPoint presentations, which I was my primary vehicle of, of communication at, at Capital One. How was being a professional developer compared to, I guess, you know, what you had feared when you were at Carnegie Mellon? Oh, it was nothing. It was way better than I had feared. I mean, developers, <laughs> developers, you know, the stereotypical developer, like, you know, just turns pizza and, ca- and coffee into code and, and never sees the light of day. But that's actually not how most developers are. There's there's lots of interaction with the product management team, even the business team in some cases. You really do have ample opportunity to give input into the direction as well as just interact with uh, the target customers as well as the, the people um, you know managing the products. So it was nothing like I had feared. I mean, at, at, at Carnegie Mellon, I think I was a little bit disillusioned because People there are extremely smart, and they're also extremely attracted to, you know, exotic things. So th- there was kind of two camps that, that I was, you know, really inspired by, but also a little bit nervous about. So on the one hand, there was kernel level hackers, kernel level hackers, people who would go in and, right. you know, really just geek out about designing a new file system or, you know, a new kernel extension or, you know, just even writing assembly code by hand and, and they would they would just love thinking about low level systems kernel level stuff and that, and that, that was just not where I wanted to spend my time like I I appreciate that there are people that really love that and at one point I even like to do some of that stuff but I, I like to operate at a much higher level now and that was really kind of off-putting the other half of my classmates that I was also inspired by but in a different way were people who were completely the opposite of the low-level kernel hackers. These guys were just wanting to spend all of their days and nights doing formal math proofs and, you know, thinking about algebraic fields and, you know, geometric theory and, you know, all this really high-level, like, academic-focused, like, what if, you know, let's think about, you know, the incomputable, incomputable, theory, in, 
computable incompleteness theorem and all, all this like you know girdle stuff and uh alan turing and you know it was it was just so abstract that i was like hey i want to actually like think about something that matters like today and not necessarily you know preliminary foundational research for 50 years from now <laughs> you want to talk at all about the process of of deciding to do your own startup and what you learned from that you know my my first startup that i had joined it was kind of clear that we weren't making progress towards product market fit. So I really wanted to try something else. Um, something that's outside of cryptocurrencies is another lifelong passion of mine is stand-up comedy. So I just love stand-up comedy as a, you know, a live event uh, entertainment. It's a way for kind of community to get together and laugh together and think about issues together and in, in, in a kind of a arm's length way where we can really talk about serious stuff but be lighthearted about it. I just love the whole the whole process of stand up comedy and the whole just everything about it. So, have I you really ever wanna, done been on stage and and done a routine? I have yet to do that. Maybe one day. Yeah. But, have you? Have you thought, is it a goal? I haven't committed to it, but it's 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 kind of a on the side of my mind or the back of my mind. I, I'll, I'll I'll fess up to that. But um, <laughs> no, but the whole process of stand up comedy and like. Some comedians have really been influential about my thinking. You know, people like Bill Hicks and Joe Rogan and Louis C.K. and George Carlin, um, Richard Pryor. These guys all have just had a huge impact on on me in terms of their ability to just be themselves, their ability to say what they think and not fear the repercussions. Uh, and I and I wanted to help more stand-up comedians do that same thing. I wanted to help more more fans be exposed to more comedians that maybe haven't been on Comedy Central or Showtime or HBO or Netflix just yet. There's 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 thousands of very talented comedians, and I I wanted to create a place where they could find more fans and fans could find more of them. Long story short, I I kind of worked on that project. I had a couple of freelancers work with me on it, and I was making you know minor traction, but it just wasn't wasn't really what I felt like was turning into a, a big business or. And I, and I also was just totally enthralled by cryptocurrencies at the time. So when it wasn't making money, I decided, hey, it's a time to get a job. And, and Coinbase is a perfect place to work because they're you know, a legitimate player, well-respected inside the crypto industry, but also outside the crypto industry. So it really felt like a natural place for me to go and, and try to make an impact. Well, this has been great. Thanks for being on the show, Jordan. Where should people find you on the web? How should they follow you, get your thoughts on things? I'd say the Twitter is the easiest place. Uh, I'm jcliff42 on Twitter. Relatively infrequent poster, but I try to you know, pack some thoughts into some tweets occasionally. And then we're at scalar.capital. Um, you know, so that's our, that's our URL. If you want. It's a pretty uh, bare bones website for legal reasons, but there's some contact information there. Fantastic. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Evan.